0: Hello again and welcome. My name is Wilhelm Stryček and this is The Orient Express, a historical podcast focusing on the Middle East region, its politics, historical conflicts and overall development that is much needed in order to fully understand the present day dynamics of the region and individual countries. In this podcast we are going to focus on the Palestinian campaign. This particular campaign represented the major focus of the British Empire's war-making in the Middle East during the Great War and had repercussions that still reverberate today. So sit back and relax as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. Same as the British campaign in Mesopotamia. It began with small Indian detachments that were dispatched from India to Egypt and Mesopotamia in the autumn of 1914. The forces expanded during 1915 and made steady initial gains in the desert terrain of the Sinai Peninsula and southern Mesopotamia. Each then suffered a major pair of reverses during the middle years of the war at Ctesiphon and Qut al-Amara in Mesopotamia between November 1915 and April 1916 and at the first and second battles of Gaza in March and April 1917. In both cases, the shock of defeat spurred a thorough military reorganization and a renewal of the offensive. This resulted in the capture of the cities of Baghdad on 11 March 1917 and Jerusalem on 10 December of 1917. Both were hailed in British as successes that lifted a war-weary population in an otherwise bleak year, filled with stories of military stalemate and growing socio-economic discontent elsewhere. The Mediterranean Expeditionary Force returned to Egypt in January 1916 and was reorganized into the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, the so-called EEF, before commencing in advance through the Sinai Peninsula towards the border with Ottoman Palestine. In Mesopotamia, Advances along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in 1915 left detachments of the Indian Expeditionary Force D holding isolated and mutually unsupportable positions and reliant on an overstretched system of river transport for its supplies. Although the trajectory of the two campaigns was broadly synchronous, they differed significantly in operational and logistical timelines. British officials attempted too much too soon in Mesopotamia, whereas the offensive in Sinai and Palestine was characterized by a more careful buildup of force and logistical resources. The campaigns made enormous demands on local resources as host societies. By the end of the war, the ratio strength of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force was 458,246 combatants and non combatants, while that of the Mesopotamian Expeditionary Force was only slightly smaller, at 408,138 combatants. These strained their principal supply bases in Egypt and India to breaking point by 1917, as well as the resources of man and animal power, food and fodder in the territory that came under British occupation in Palestine and Mesopotamia. In addition, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force and Mesopotamian Expeditionary Force relied upon armies of local laborers and animal transport columns for their logistical needs, as well as local resources of food and fodder. Exposure to the lengthy fighting therefore made a heavy footprint on the communities caught up in the fighting. The campaigns in Palestine and Mesopotamia constituted the major thrust of Britain's offensive in the Middle East following the withdrawal from the Dardanelles in December 1915. By contrast, the Ottoman focus after Gallipoli was very much on the Russian front, with the loss of Erzurum in February 1916 followed by heavy fighting that summer. During that year of revolutions, Russian weakening and eventual withdrawal opened up the possibility of Ottoman gains in Central Asia and the Caucasus, and attention shifted towards the Panterranean option. Thus, by the time of the big British pushes towards Baghdad and Jerusalem, a combination of military overstretch and expansionary aims elsewhere severely weakened the Ottoman armies facing them in Mesopotamia and Palestine. Britain's campaigns also provided the context for the controversial wartime agreements reached with the Sheriff of Mecca, the French and the Zionist advocates of the Jewish National Home in Palestine. They occurred as British and French officials sought to exploit internal tensions within the Ottoman Empire by manipulating rivalries and encouraging proto-nationalist sentiments. British rule in Egypt and the three decades between the 1882 occupation and the outbreak of war with Istanbul in 1914 rested on a small official presence. Governance was facilitated by layers of local collaborative groups such as civil servants, provincial and municipal officials, and military personnel. Egyptian exposure and enforced participation in the Great War placed great strain on the collaborative networks that underpinned British power and projected its influence. Military demands for resources, manpower and animals required the British authorities to broaden and deepen substantively their penetration of local social and economic patterns. The decisions taken between November 1914 and November 1918 therefore had important ramifications that extended into the post-war era. The pressures of sustaining major military campaigns led to a significant enhancement of state powers of mobilization and extractive capabilities. A more authoritarian form of colonial control developed as the British authorities asked more of their local collaborative elites. This in turn reconfigurated local power relations and generated local backlashes against the more onerous and visible demands for resources and manpower. Following the declaration of war with the Ottoman Empire on 5th of November 1914, British policy focused on resolving the political and military status of Egypt within the British Empire. Egypt had been under temporary British occupation since 1882 and hosted a small British garrison of between 4,000 and 5,000 soldiers. In 1914, the British general in charge was John Maxwell, a veteran of more than 30 years experience of Egypt. He worked alongside the networks of British government and commercial advisers, civil servants and inspectors that were spread throughout every branch of the Egyptian administration. Egypt remained nominally part of the Ottoman Empire in November 1914. The outbreak of the war with Istanbul naturally focused attention on this fact. Gray initially proposed the outright annexation of Egypt but was opposed by the acting consul general in Cairo, Sir Milne Chidham. Cheatham defended the cooperative tradition of the temporary occupation and argued that annexation would contradict the British government's declared aim of upholding the rights of small nations. The religious dimension was a further complicating factor that led the residency in Cairo to advocate a cautious approach in 1914. In August 1914, British defense planners decided that imperial interests could best be defended by restoring the balance of power in Europe. In this respect, Britain entered the war in order to preserve the status quo rather than to make territorial acquisitions in the Middle East or elsewhere. Nevertheless, Britain's imperial position was based on maintaining control of the strategic artery of the Empire, the Suez Canal. This had aptly been described as the umbilical cord of empire, connecting India and the dominions of Australia and New Zealand and allowing the passage of men, material and munitions to and from the various front lines. Alongside the elimination of Germany's global network of communications and coaling stations, securing the Suez Canal and by extension, maintaining stability in Egypt and its approaches were critical to securing empire's functioning. On 2nd of November, With war imminent, the British military authorities issued a proclamation to the people of Egypt. This stated that Britain would assume full responsibility for its defense and that no Egyptian would be asked to participate in the fighting. A system of rigorous press censorship and counterintelligence work added further layers of protection. Together, these measures successfully blunted Istanbul's declaration of a holy war on 14th of November. During this period, military units from India, Australia and New Zealand all passed through Egypt on their way to the European front. In addition, two Indian divisions, the 10th and the 11th Indian Infantry Divisions, arrived as the core of the new force in Egypt, tasked with securing the Canal Zone. On 19th of December 1914, Britain declared Egypt a protectorate and replaced the proto-Ottoman ruler Abbas Himli II with his nephew, the pliant pro-British Hussein. This move settled the issue of Egyptian sovereignty, while London acquired a valuable local ally. The foreign secretary to the government of India, Sir Henry McMahon, became the first high commissioner in Cairo. Martial law was introduced to bypass the system of capitulations whereupon the British military effectively became the supreme legislative and executive authority in Egypt. However, it initially had little impact on daily life. Maxwell was a popular figure with long experience in Egypt and ensured that his tactful yet strong administration ruled in close accord with the civil administration. These initial measures proved sufficient to avoid the anti-British fever that many officials feared after the declaration of hostilities with Istanbul. The immediate military threat to Egypt lasted until 3 February 1915, when an Ottoman force of 20,000 men and a complement of field artillery managed to cross the Sinai desert from Palestine. They were led by the German general Friedrich Kress von Kressenstein. A member of Lehman von Senders' military mission and consisted of two divisions, the 10th and 25th, the infantry division, totaling 25,000 men of Jamal Pasha's Fourth Army. The raiding force attempted to block the Suez Canal and blow up the Sweetwater Canal that ran parallel to it. However, The attempt to infiltrate the Suez Canal using inflatable pontoons and rafts was beaten back by the canal's Indian defenders with the heavy loss of more than 1,500 Ottoman lives, though not before two companies had actually managed to cross the canal and establish a small bridget on its western bank. The engagement marked the end of the direct military threat to the canal. During 1915, Egypt served as the main base for the Dardanelles campaign. Military operations at the Gallipoli occupied British attention during the spring and summer as the campaign expanded in scope and size. The Egyptian city of Alexandria became the main base for the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, owing to the lack of suitable deep-water ports and infrastructural facilities in the Eastern Aegean. A fleet of 120 transport ships plied between Alexandria and the advanced base on the islands of Mudros. The ships kept the troops supplied with rations and ammunitions as well as reinforcements of troops and pack animals. Meanwhile, the main supply base at Alexandria made use of the substantial pro-existing manufacturing and repair facilities available locally. Outright military demands on Egypt were not at first onerous in 1915. They consisted primarily of constructing hospital accommodations for the casualties from Gallipoli, requisitioning buildings for military works and implementing military regulations to control the twin vices of drink and prostitution. Egypt's role in sustaining Britain's military effort in the Eastern Mediterranean increased significantly in October 1915, after German and Austrian forces invaded and quickly overran Serbia. The military demands for maintaining forces at Gallipoli and Salonica meant that military policy in Egypt was relatively limited in 1915. Approximately 60,000 troops of the force in Egypt were confined to a passive defense of the Suez Canal. This led to concerns among the military authorities in London that the canal seemed to be defending the troops, not the troops defending the canal. British and Imperial forces also conducted a military campaign to quell the Sanusi rebellion in the Western Desert between Egypt and Libya. This had its origins in Sanusi resistance to the Italian invasion of Libya in 1911. An armed uprising began in November 1914 in Tripolitania and the southern Libyan province of Fezzan before spreading west to the Sanusi heartland of Kyrenaica at the edge of Egypt's Western Desert. Italy's decision to enter the Great War on the side of Britain and France led the Ottomans to increase their levels of material support to the Sanusi, who themselves had declared the holy war on the Italian presence in Kirinica as early as 1913. The Italians' hold on Libya contracted steadily and by the end of 1915 was reduced to the coastal cities of Tripoli and Benghazi. Moreover. They suffered a major reverse in April 1915 at the Battle of Gardabia at the hands of the erstwhile local ally Ramadan al-Swaili of Misurata, resulting in the virtual annihilation of the Italian force in Libya. To the east, Ottoman pressure grew on the Grand Sanusi Said Ahmad al-Sharif to launch an attack on British forces in Egypt from the rear. This paid off in November 1915 as a force of 5,000 combatants crossed the frontier and marched eastwards along the coast towards Alexandria. Simultaneously, a German U-boat transported Ottoman and German officers to the Egyptian coastal settlement of Solom and overpowered a British force there. In response, the British formed a western frontier force of two brigades, a squadron of the Royal Flying Corps and units from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and India. It established its headquarters at Mersa Matruh, midway between Alexandria and Solum, and methodically began to roll back the Senussi advance. This was achieved between December 1915 and March 1916 in a series of five engagements that marked the end of the Senussi threat along the Mediterranean coastline. However, fighting flared up again in October 1916 when Senussi forces occupied a number of strategic oases forcing the British to divert troops from the Sinai campaign to maintain a garrison in the western desert. Finally, in February 1917, a British Light Armored Car Brigade defeated the Senussi and forced their final withdrawal across the Libyan frontier. With the threat of attack from the rear nullified, the British could focus on the advance east across the Sinai Peninsula and into Ottoman Palestine. British plans for a methodological advance were underpinned by painstaking logistical preparation. This reflected their growing awareness of the current breakdown in their logistical arrangements in Mesopotamia. In Sinai, the advance was to be accompanied by the construction of a single-track railway and a water pipeline. Both commenced at the Suez Canal port of Qantara and constituted what one contemporary observer labelled as umbilical cord, linking the advancing troops with their food, water and military stocks. In the meantime, Kress von Kressenstein led a second Ottoman raiding force of nearly 4,000 men across the Sinai to mount a surprise attack on the 5th Mounted Brigade at Kwatia at 23 April. As with an attempted raid on the canal the same day and with the earlier February 1915 assault, it was beaten back, although with severe British casualties. The attack served further notice of the need to secure strategic death in Sinai. The final Ottoman threat to Egypt and the Suez Canal came on 4 August 1916 when a joint German Ottoman expeditionary force, comprising of the 3rd Anatolian Infantry Division and machine gun companies and trench mortar battalions from the German Pasha 1 group, attacked British and Anzac forces at Romani. British forces emerged victorious at the Battle of Romani and finally secured the Suez Canal from enemy attacks. In retrospect, It marked the end of the defense of Egypt and the beginning of the transition of the Sinai campaign from a defensive maneuver to defend the canal into an offensive posture aimed at invading Ottoman territory in Palestine itself. In March 1917, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force launched offensive operations in southern Palestine. The assault on the Ottoman town of Gaza and 26 of March constituted the juncture at which the defensive campaign to protect the Suez Canal became a thrust into enemy territory. A combination of military, logistical and broader geopolitical factors lay behind the decision to extend the campaign into Ottoman territory. The seizure of Gaza and the town of Beersheba to its east would secure control over the two principal sources of water supply in the region. Its more temperate climate and ecology of grassland, wheat and barley fields, gardens and orchards would provide a healthier summer base for the Egyptian expeditionary force than the malaria-ridden coastal plain as well as critical supplies of food and fodder for the troops and their pack animals. Control of Gaza and Beersheba would also deny the Ottomans the use of the towns to block the Egyptian expeditionary forces routes of advance. Furthermore, their capture would provide cover for the extension of the military railway into Palestine itself. The invasion of southern Palestine was a part of broader international strategy of exerting combined pressure of the central powers on all fronts. This was agreed at an Anglo-French conference in Calais on 26th February 1917. The war cabinet in London believed that the conquest of Palestine would help restore British strategy in the east. This was particularly relevant in the aftermath of the military humiliation and defeat suffered at Qut al-Amara in Mesopotamia in April 1916 which officials worried had dealt a damaging blow to British mystique and prestige. They also hoped that a successful campaign would stimulate the Arab revolt in the Hejaz, draw Ottoman troops away from Russian troops in Armenia and British forces in Mesopotamia and assist in the general expulsion of the enemy from the Middle East. On 26th of March 1917, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force made the first of what would eventually be three attempts to take Gaza. Initially, the assault was successful as cavalry units quickly enveloped the town, although plans to use shells filled with poison gas did not materialize. This was in part because of a faulty British assessment that the Ottomans would fall back to a line stretching from Jerusalem to Jaffa rather than hold the position at Gaza. War cabinet requested that Murray continue the advance into enemy territory in Palestine. This necessitated a second attempt to take Gaza on 17th to 19th of April, featuring the eventual first use of poison gas in any Middle Eastern theater of war. The two-faced operation sought to attack the main Ottoman defenses along a 4-kilometer line while pinning down enemy reinforcements to its east. However, the attack was beaten back by a forward and reinforced Ottoman garrison numbering more than 20,000 men, with no progress to show for the heavy casualties sustained. This second setback left the Egyptian Expeditionary Force demoralized and defeated, and Murray and the commander of Eastern Force, Generals Charles Doble, were both soon replaced. Murray was succeeded by General Sir Edmund Allenby on 11th of June. The Third Battle of Gaza took place between 31st October and 7th of November 1917. It began with the seizure of Beersheba and its water supplies by the 20th Corps and the Desert Mounted Corps in the end of October. Gas shells were fired by the 52nd Division at Gaza, but in general were found to be largely ineffective. At the time, this was attributed to the fact that the sea breeze of Gaza made use of gas difficult. The air was too clear and too volatile for gas to be very effective. Instead, 3rd Gaza became notable for the famous charge of the Australian 4th Light Horse Brigade that overwhelmed the Ottoman trenches and resulted in the vital capture of 15 of the 17 wells intact. With the Ottomans' left flank secure, 21st Corps attacked Gaza on 2nd of November and succeeded in breaking through the Ottoman lines at the 7th of November. The extent of the logistical reorganization carried out since the first and second battles of Gaza was so significant that the third battle opened with the heaviest extra-European artillery bombardment in the entire war. The gun concentration was equivalent to the one of 1st of July 1916 on the Somme, testimony to the success of the painstaking preparatory overhaul of the networks of supply and transportation. As 20th Corps subsequently advanced northwards, it then encountered stiff Ottoman resistance in the Judean hills. The breakthrough at Gaza and Beersheba forced the former chief of the German general staff, General Erich von Falkenhayn, to withdraw the 7th and 8th armies to Jerusalem. The 7th army in particular conducted a strong rearguard action that held up the Egyptian expeditionary force advance and required much hard fighting to overcome it. After that, Jerusalem surrendered on 9th of December 1917. Its defenders began a disorganized retreat, as most Ottoman army units in the area were in poor shape, chronically short of supplies and reinforcements, under continuous pressure from the Egyptian expeditionary force and in very low morale. Two days later, Allenby formally entered the city on foot through the Jaffa Gate, flanked by civilian and military officers, including T.E. Lawrence and François-Georges Picot as well as representatives from the small Italian and French contingents with the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. On the 27th of December, an Ottoman counterattack attempted to retake the city. It failed in this objective, but did inflict more than 1,300 casualties on the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, and minor operations around the city continued until February 1918. The seizure of Jerusalem in December 1917 represented a political triumph far more than a military of strategic victory. It came at the end of an especially turbulent period for the Entente and Allied powers, after a year in which the Russian revolutions and French mutinies threatened its very existence and the bloody stalemates at Ypres and Passchendaele appeared to be wearing down the morale of the British people just as much as the strength of the enemy formations. The extension of the military campaign into Palestine required the Egyptian expeditionary force to assume responsibility for a land ravaged by economic impact of war. The Ottoman provinces of Syria, Lebanon and Palestine suffered unimaginable hardship and dislocation during the war years. They were especially badly hit by a severe famine that began in 1914 and lasted through 1916. This was partially attributable to successive poor harvests and a devastating plague of locusts in Palestine before March and October 1915, heavy Ottoman demands for local man and animal power, and the closure of trading routes occasioned by the division of the region into varying spheres of influence and control. Simultaneously, Thousands of young men were conscripted into the Ottoman military machine and work brigades, while the requisitioning of labor, draft animals, cattle and agricultural produce diverted all the scarce resources that were left untouched. These measures imposed a very great strain on the civilian inhabitants of Syria and Lebanon as food shortages began in the cities and towns before spreading rapidly to rural areas and close to a half million of people died of famine. The impact of these extractive policies was magnified by repressive Ottoman measures that restricted the flow of supplies to the Levant for fear that they would fall into enemy hands and by the repressive nature of the Ottoman government under the leadership of Ahmed Jamal Basha. It was against this grim socio-economic backdrop that the British occupying authorities began to set up a local administrative structure in their areas of control in Palestine. As detailed above, Large-scale military operations halted after the capture of Jerusalem in December 1917, aside from relatively minor initiatives to consolidate and strengthen the Egyptian Expeditionary Force line of defense. During the summer, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force limited its activities to small-scale raids designed to improve positions on a very local level. Quite apart from the inadvisibility of undertaking large operations during the summer heat, Allenby needed to reorganize his force after losing most of his British battalions to France. This created logistical difficulties as the replacement battalions from India needed to be transported to Egypt, equipped and trained, before being sent up to the line to Palestine. The final battle of Mejido began on 19 September 1918. It coincided with General Louis Franche de Sprey decisive breakthrough from the Salonika front at the Battle of Dobropole and thus called the Central Powers in a state of general retreat. For their part, Allenby's force in Palestine smashed through the Ottoman lines in a joint infantry cavalry offensive. Large numbers of aircraft and mechanized transport units cut off and routed the retreating Ottoman armies in what was later recognized as a textbook example of a mobile deep battle. A disorderly Ottoman withdrawal turned into a rout that surprised and surpassed Allenby's own expectations. The destruction of the Ottoman 7th and 8th armies and the retreat of the Ottoman 4th army from Amman paved the way for the Egyptian expeditionary force to advance northward through Syria and Lebanon. Some 75,000 Ottoman troops were taken prisoner during the offensive which halted after the capture of Aleppo on 26th of October, for the cavalry and mechanized transport had far outstripped their supply lines and railheads. The Palestine campaign formally ended with the armistice of Mudros on 30th of October, which took the Ottoman Empire out of the war. Nevertheless, the British-led invasion and occupation of Palestine in 1917 to 1918 had far-reaching administrative and regional ramifications. Following the capture of Jerusalem in December 1917, Allenby established an occupied enemy territory administration, the so-called OETA, in Palestine under the auspices of the chief political officer within the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, Gilbert Clayton, and with General Ronald Storrs as military governor of Jerusalem. The issue of local administration became yet more urgent in the rapid crumbling of Ottoman positions after the Battle of Mejido in September 1918. As the Egyptian expeditionary force advanced northwards through Syria and Lebanon, it assumed responsibility for a famine-affected region in a state of economic collapse. The administrative vacuum caused by the retreating on 23rd of November 1918, the British issued a military edict formally dividing the region into three occupied enemy territories. Occupied enemy territory south covered Palestine and was to be under British occupation. By contrast, occupied enemy territory west comprised coastal Syria and was placed under French responsibility while occupied enemy territory east included the interior of Syria from Aleppo to Aqaba and was designed to be an Arab administration under Emir Faisal bin Hussein, the son of the Sharif of Mecca and leader of the Northern Arab Army. Finally, the occupied enemy territory north contained areas outside the other free zones, notably Kilikia, and was placed under French administration as well. Needless to say, these decisions clashed with the diverse agreements made during the war and laid the seeds for much future bitterness and divisiveness. With these decisions, the campaign in Egypt and Palestine came to a formal if messy end. However, the legacies of wartime hardship and the implications of the political agreements made between 1916 and 1918 came to haunt the transition to post-Ottoman forms of control. They still remain issues a century later, both in terms of their enduring impact on regional dynamics and in terms of the nations and states that came into being after the war. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called the first world war in the middle east by christian ulriksen in this matter i highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject since the book dwells into bigger depth not only in the case of the egyptian campaign but also in other matters such as the mesopotamian campaign or the gallipoli one also if you found this episode interesting i will be more than glad for its sharing and you can also visit my instagram account or facebook page called the orient express middle east history podcast where i am regularly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes so if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode don't forget to hit the like and follow button see you next week with another episode of the orient express history podcast